and now at this point it was dark and i could not get my tent up in this crazy blizzard and i just started getting really concerned because of uh, uh, you know i had sweat too much if i didn't get my tent up if i didn't have a safe place to change into dry clothes and some shelter you know i could die out here now you know how much worse can things possibly get that kind of core hand-to-mouth survival living like you know it really makes kind of all your problems in your day-to-day life disappear welcome to out of adventuring the show about explorers and inspiring adventurers and the details behind their incredible journeys they not only take us through their hardships and highlights but also let us know what they have learned on these trips that has changed them and their everyday life Hi, I'm Torben from the World Explorers Collective and today with me is Jim Barrett, an adventurer and survivalist who became best known when he, together with his brother Ted, won the History Channel's show alone where he had to survive for over 70 days out in the wilderness, basically starving every day and surviving for over 70 days on basically no food and constantly being cold was an absolute mental challenge for him. But he has also faced so, so many other incredible and dangerous challenges in all of his other expeditions, many of which led him in, into the Arctic and many of which were unsupported, which means that he packed his bag or he, he had a sled and he and you know maybe some some of his uh, some of his friends would go out and it would be just them for for days and weeks to come. And if something went wrong, well, there's basically no margin forever, so nothing can go wrong. And that ability to survive, to keep pushing, to, to keep going, to not give up, gave Jim a unprecedented mindset of resilience and also positivity for, for being grateful for all the things that he, he has in his everyday life and also being able to put his problems that everyone has and that occur in everyday life into relation to all these extreme situations that he has been uh, on so many times before being caught up in blizzards in the arctic or running out of food while you were still days and days away from from civilization jim is from canada and most if not all of his big adventures and survival expeditions took place in canada which is blessed with this unique wilderness of lakes and mountains and and even going up all the way into into the arctic so it really is the perfect playground for someone like jim who just wants to put himself into extreme situations that not only for the sake of being in that situation and surviving but it also allows him to reach places that that people otherwise would would never go to um, yeah, so I, I mean, I'm one of the pr probably few people who travels all over Canada. I've been to um, every, I haven't been to Prince Edward Island, but it's a very small province, um, but I'd like to go there. But I've been to, uh, you know, every province and territory and 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 just explored backcountry and remote wilderness areas, you know, like all of Norway could could fit 
you know, just in a small section of, of the province of Ontario, right? So, like, by land, Canada's big. It's just a lot of it, it would be considered inhabitable uh, for some because a lot of it's in the Arctic and stuff, right? But, um, you know, I, I embrace all that. Um, but, yeah, so, a you know, not as many Canadians as you think has kind of explored their own country and realized how many different you know cultures and cultural experiences and 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 uh you know languages indigenous languages and and mm. historical elements and stories and geography beautiful uh mountains and all kinds of different uh you know landforms um and how diverse it is wildlife wise and everything wise are in our country just because it's so expensive to travel within it like you could it costs more to travel from montreal which is a, a a large Canadian city, probably the most famous Canadian city, which is in Eastern Canada. It costs more to travel from there to Kujuak, which is in the same province, than it does to travel from Montreal to Sydney, Australia. What? Right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Because there's no roads into Kujuak. Not very many people fly there. It's it's not connected to a, a system of roads. You can't drive there. Um, and uh, everything that gets up there, you know, you're looking at some of these remote communities in the Canadian North, which is just what the North is kind of a colloquial, a loose colloquial term to mean, you know, the northern uh, reaches of Canada. Yeah. Uh, and then our North is is often, you know, considered to kind of be the Arctic. Well, you know, Kujak is right on the tree line. And, um, you know, these these communities, everything needs to get there. A lot of them are on the coast. So it's, a, it's either by air or a very long, slow barge uh, will bring and deliver things like diesel fuel and other staples and stuff like that. Um, everything up there, the the prices are are a lot more you know escalated in a lot of these these remote communities, which is you know one of the reasons why hunting and and uh, is such an important part of their culture there as well because groceries are quite expensive. Um, so yeah, I, I love to visit you know a lot of those areas um, uh, in Canada, and uh, where I live is definitely you know more more tame than those places, but. Uh, you know, you, you start to go to these kind of places in Canada. A lot of Canadians never visit them and think, you know, a lot of Canadians from the South might think, well, why would you go there? Well, let me tell you, man, we once you do, it, it gets into your blood and like you get addicted to it. And a lot of people who go to the North and not just Canadians, a lot of people who visit mm -hmm. the North, you'll see them going back again and again and again. And there's just, like, it's hard to explain, but just even talking about it right now, I'm getting goosebumps. So you you've been to the north to the Arctic uh, quite a bit then I assume. Yeah, the subarctic and the Arctic. I've I've been to the high Arctic and I've done uh, uh, you know part of the amazing thing there is spending time in the communities and and with the people and hearing the stories of of their way of life. Um, but also I've been to you know remote areas in in uh, northern Canada where you know I'll fly into uh, a small you know, Inuit Hamlet, and I'll take a float plane that will fly me out over miles of Arctic tundra and deposit me at a lake where who knows when the last person has been there. And, uh, you know, I'll take a, a, a trip down a very seldom, you know, traveled uh, remote whitewater river that's up in the Arctic archipelago. The one I'm kind of thinking about right now is called the Kujua, which is in the Western Arctic. And it's further, it's further north than the entire state of Alaska. 
Alaska, you know, and you, you don't even need a fishing rod. You can just use like a, a, a piece of rope and a lure to just catch giant fish. Um, you know, uh, yeah. And some of the scenery you're watching where we were followed by a pack of wolves, by a pack of Arctic wolves, white Arctic wolves when we were there. And, you know, we saw a hundred muskox, we saw over a hundred caribou, um, you know, there, you know, we've seen multiple polar bears and and beluga whales and all kinds of amazing wildlife and experiences that are be had there. But, you know, it's not just somewhere anybody could go without, you know, a certain amount of risk and a, a definitely a good amount of experience and know-how if you're gonna be out on the land um in that capacity and and traveling and uh, you Absolutely. know, out on the land. Yeah, for sure. How did you gather that experience now that you I mean, you went out to these places sometimes for weeks to come, um, mm. not not always by yourself as you as the only human, but pretty much always mm. unsupported. Uh, but how mm. did you get to that point that you say, okay, I can, I can actually do this, and I can put myself in one of the most, if not the most, hostile environment on on the earth and actually enjoy it? Yeah, you know, I think a, a lot of it just kind of came from from a confidence that I had as, as a younger kid, because, um, my family had uh, a water access camp that was, you had a lot of, uh, you know, um, you know, public land all around it. And the only way you could get there is by boat and we would drive there. And then sometimes you get there at night and it was raining and you'd have to all get into the boat in the pitch black in the fog. And you'd take this boat, uh, you know, not a enormous distance, but about six kilometers or more, um, you know, to basically try to find your camp your cabin um in ontario the part of ontario i'm from that's they're called the uh, camps or sometimes cottages mm. um we see people just call them the cabin and the, you know it, they could mean like a huge beautiful place in bc they'll call it cabin it, you could mean anything right but that's just sort of the term that's given to it and uh you know it was off grid there's no electricity there for many years um Uh, in the winter, we'd haul, we'd chop a hole in the, in the ice and haul buckets up. And we'd always spend time walking to try to find and discover other backcountry lakes. And from a young age, I would, you know, carry my canoe into those lakes or walk into them and try to find a boat someone stashed. And we'd fish and live off of fish and even eat wild mushrooms with, with um, knowing to be smart about that and spend multiple days kind of just camping there from a young age. So we learned about boats. We learned about paddling. Um, my uncle was in the Canadian Armed Forces and, and taught us about uh, uh, how to use a compass and map from a young age, um, which always made me wonder why we were always getting lost. I, I don't know how <laughs> much he was really using the compass and map. I think he just was intentionally getting lost. Um, but what that taught me was that you know what, maybe we're not getting home tonight, but spending a night in the woods and not really having a real dinner uh, and, and you know, spending a night overnight in a little shelter and getting home the next morning isn't really something to be so scared about. Uh, you know what I mean? So I just had all these experiences. And then as I got a little older, you know, I started really exploring this area um, around where my family's camp was in a, a kind of a major way, really trying to get into all these backcountry spots and, uh, um, eventually I then started branching out and exploring other areas, uh, you know, the Tomogamy region uh, of Ontario, you know, the quintessential, you know, canoeing destination of Algonquin Park, which I live right near the northern border of still. 
uh, is a great place to kind of for people to start um, uh, in in these kind of experiences of paddling and, and backcountry travel in all seasons of the year. Um, and then, uh, you know, I started reading up on it. So I started reading some books. There's one called uh, Expedition Canoeing by Cliff Jacobson. I think it's called Canoeing Wild Rivers. It's basically a textbook. Me never being really good in school, a textbook, ugh, you know, but this is a book that you get a hold of that you go back to reference that you don't just read, you study. And I really studied that going through it and reference it back and forth and learn how to kind of plan these bigger trips and started finding some of these, these rivers of the north. Um, also, just uh as a kid me and my parents would read us farley mowat books um a lot of farley mowat uh, he's a famous canadian writer who's wrote about his kind of love affair with the north some of his writing have been written off as subjective nonfiction, maybe not really up to the terms of journalistic integrity that he that people reading it might have thought at the time but still an incredible storyteller and um and so that was always a bit of a part of me. And so I always thought, yeah, I can do this. I mm. can do, I'm, I'm just, I just had that confidence from, from those, from at a young age, um, you know, just learning about nature. And, you know, my parents were always wanting to break out uh, a book on, um, you know, what wild plants or what animal tracks or what kind of animal poop we saw or what kind of birds we were looking at. And that was always just uh, part of every, uh, you know, my day-to-day life for a large extent. And um, then I got on, online and started looking at trips and i saw this one river called the nahani the south nahani river in the mackenzie mountains the wild mackenzie mountains 900 million square acres of raw pure wilderness in the northwest territories and uh i said i gotta go i gotta go canoe this river and i was only 22 um and it was not cheap uh, to to because you're you're taking commercial flights to these remote communities that are very expensive to fly to um there's no direct flights any of them then you got to rent a, you got to charter a float plane which is very expensive too um so i managed to talk my brother into this who was probably only about 20 years old at the time and we did just a self-guided trip down this wild remote river and after that we were hooked and you know people kept telling me oh you know that's a trip of a lifetime trip of a lifetime and i remember thinking like this isn't just a trip of a lifetime or, you know, I, I got to find a way no matter what to do this stuff as much as I possibly can and get out there as much as I possibly can. I just started just absolutely getting addicted and craving to it and eventually turned it into my full-time job doing adventures, um, writing about them for magazines and now uh, creating films uh, about my outdoor adventures that I post on my YouTube channel. Uh, sort of just been a, a lifelong passion i've been doing the these large-scale adventures for you know about 17 years now it's interesting to hear how you're maybe not surprising but how much your family and your upbringing has shaped you in that and maybe took away a little bit of the fear and that suspicion that i guess a lot of people have when they look into the outdoors and you know we will talk about your some of your extreme trips you've you have done but even just you know, canoeing, stay, staying in a cabin. There's, there's probably a lot of people who even struggle just, just, just doing that and having that fear removed. 
I think so. And, you know, people think of uh, Canada as this wild country with all these like rugged lumberjacks and outdoorsmen. And I mean, that's true to an extent, but the majority of Canadians live in in large cities. Um, And so, you know, we do have an outlet to it. But I was also lucky in that my family's been in Canada for a number for a number of generations, which meant at one time uh, back in the 50s and 60s, the Canadian government, the Ontario province of Ontario government was actually selling public land or crown land for people to build cabins on um and because of that you know my dad and grandfather were able to uh buy some land and build a cottage uh build a cabin on it when it was like dirt cheap which would now cost a fortune so if anybody trying to get into that now has to be well off at the very least for the most part at least in in um anywhere that's within a three or four hour drive of a major city um you know to have a house and to have you know a cabin now um is not cheap Uh, so i was kind of lucky that i got that upbringing at a time when you could just be you know a a regular kind of joe and and buy a cotton now where i live now they're like a fortune you know what i mean so yeah so i definitely have have some uh uh you know luck on my side and some privilege on my side when it comes to that i guess when you then however go out in into the solo trips and one of those was the um ungava peninsula i hope i pronounced it correctly um yeah, that, ungava. yeah that you did for for yeah pretty much over over a month how much of that is like was that out of comfort zone was that one of the like really extreme things or was that still a okay i'm i'm really excited about this and this is going to be great yeah i mean the ungava peninsula is basically nunavik which is a region uh the arctic region of the extreme northern part of the province of quebec and it is the eastern arctic it is basically the reason it's like warm where in norway is because the gulf stream just decides to avoid arctic quebec it just comes up it's like no nah, i don't want to go there it's too scary <laughs> and then comes over to norway basically so it's like has high elevation over 2000 feet in elevation the tree line is much further south, much south of the Arctic Circle there compared to the Western Arctic. And it is a rugged and challenging uh, country. And I always, part of the reason, sure, it was definitely out of my comfort zone, but I had a good amount of experience traveling. I brought my dog with me, who's a husky Malamute mix, had a big, thick fur coat. He liked to pull sleds. He was a bush dog. And I had a, a good amount of experience hauling sleds through the bush into my family's cabin and also just uh, doing some winter camping trips. And, um, uh, you know, I did some research as best as I can and headed out there, but, you know, it's, I mean, to, to tackle something like that solo on your first big Arctic experience was pretty terrifying. Um, so it definitely was, was, uh, uh, out of my comfort zone and um but i had one thing happen i mean first of all the reason i wanted to go is because there's this thing called pingualuit crater which is you know arguably the most impressive most intact meteor impact crater in the world like it is mind-blowing and wow. it's just in a state of wilderness in arctic quebec i always wanted to go there i thought maybe i could do a canoe trip to get there and you know, then then I said, well, I'll do a winter trek there. That would be cool. And then I, you know, looking at the map, I'm like, well, hell, if I if I walk all the way there, I might as well just keep going. So I traveled from Hudson Strait to Hudson Bay, and the feeling of leaving an ocean at your back and then arriving with an ocean in front of you 
was just a very, a very cool and amazing feeling of, wow, I've really traveled somewhere. And I remember it was like day two. And at this point, it was very tough going because I was traveling. Fortunately, the snow through this section was quite hard packed. So even though it was deep, but there's no trees and that wind packs that snow super hard. And you can walk on it at this stretch anyways, without having to wear snowshoes. And it also makes it a little easier to tow your toboggan. But I was on a, a long, steady 2,000-foot climb. And anybody that's ever pulled a, a pulk or a toboggan knows that even a, you know, a slight sort of uphill um, is make thing, makes things a heck of a lot more challenging when you're hauling yeah. uh, stuff you know, harder than you'd think. And so, you know, I was, I was in this section and uh, I was pushing, I was pushing, I was behind schedule and I'd worked up more of a sweat than was ideal. Now I did have a small canvas tent, a very small canvas tent and and uh, a small Coleman stove that I could use with some natural gas that I could use for, for some heat. And um, all of a sudden this blizzard came upon me and it was just blasting blasting snow that was hitting my face was blowing and snowing was hitting my face and stinging and hurting and like there was no way i could get my tent up and now at this point it was dark and i could not get my tent up in this crazy blizzard and i just started getting really concerned because of uh, uh, you know i had sweat too much if i didn't get my tent up if i didn't have a safe place to change into dry clothes and some shelter you know i could die out here um, and, uh, you know, as I was setting this up, I, you know, I knew I had to build uh, a snow block wall um, to protect myself from the wind. This is an extremely important skill to know how to do is to build a snow block wall. So you have a block from the wind uh, so that you set your tent up behind it. You know what I mean? And it's it's uh, what you're doing is you're cutting pieces of snow. Out. And so researching this, I thought, OK, build a snow block wall. But I never tried built i'd built even built you know an igloo before um in here but with different snow conditions and i really underestimated which is really really stupid uh exactly how to go about cutting out these blocks and so i had this big knife like a big snow knife and i was stabbing it into this super hard pack snow you know a, a wood saw a cross cut saw would be an appropriate thing to use to get through this hard pack snow and i was trying to slice by cutting back and forth and it wasn't getting anywhere and uh, and and you know here's me out on the arctic doing this trip and i'm just like wow you know how stupid of me for not to realize this and i remember just being angry and thinking oh god like w what am i going to do here and just angrily you know chopping my knife into the snow um and then realize doing that in frustration and realize <gasps> That's how you do it. You don't stab it in and slice back and forth. You chop at the snow and you chop to form these things. And just that that moment there, I probably was a difference between life and death. And at that around that point, now my dog has this big fur coat, but around that time I looked over and realized that his that his penis had frostbite on it. And I don't know anybody that runs huskies or dogs. Before I headed off, I talked to this this guy who is actually a neighbor of a friend of mine that owns a hunt camp, and he ran dogs in the Iditarod and the Yukon Crest, and he's perfused a professional dog sled musher. And uh, he told me before going into this, he's like, you know, Jim, you know, you can be careful because, you know, these dogs, you know, penises, they'll they'll freeze up out there. And I'm just I start laughing. 
And he's very serious. Like, how dare you laugh at this? This is, you know, serious issue. And he's like, Jim, you know, I've been at the side of the Yukon Quest Trail with a, a husky's penis in each hand trying to warm it up. You know, and I laugh more. He's getting, he's getting angry at me. Uh, like, you know, don't you know I'm in this survival situation? He said, like, Jim, you see that dog right there? His penis snapped clean off like an icicle. And I look over and there's just this like penisless dusky over there. And I'm like, oh my God, this is just like, this is serious. Okay, I won't lie. Well, here I am, you know, with my dog's penis freezing off in a blizzard almost about to die and 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 just my frustration of chopping the snow instead of instead of you know doing it anyways i managed to get this snow block wall um uh, built i managed to you know my dog's frostbite on his penis wasn't so bad but this is a serious issue that happens and you laugh if you will yeah you I, know? I, have, I have to laugh <laughs> it's funny it is it funny, is funny. Yeah. And so, um, so anyways, uh, yeah, you know, and here we are and finally get my tent up in this ramshackle way, you know, by building a snowblock wall, by staking it out first, by putting these super strong A-frame poles up in it. My dog's name was Buck. And I got into the tent. I brought my dog in the tent and I just grabbed him. I said, we're going to live. Buck. Like grabbed him by the cheeks. I'm like, we're you know, and my dog was happy. And sure, sure enough, we, the wind, howled outside all night but i anchored my tent properly fortunately i i know how to anchor and set up a tent in extreme conditions and we managed to do that and the next morning i woke up and i thought to myself well how could it get any worse than that right um and it's funny because i before i headed out on this trip i, I was hanging out with these two guys and these guys are you know like awesome dudes uh you know pillars of the community D both of them have dog sled teams uh both of them are are you know sustenance hunters and these guys are like you know hardcore northern people right inuit guys like know how to freaking do you know you drop them off at the north pole naked and they come back with a with a polar bear coat and a dog team kind of guys right so anyways, um, uh, yeah, so they told me, well, before I headed out, the last guy was there. He only lasted two days and he got lost and we had to like go in and rescue him, basically. And I'm thinking two days, geez, well, here I am two days in. I'm like, OK, I get where this guy was coming from. And But the next morning, I just it kind of gave me about a confidence that here I made it through this scary situation. I learned so much in that situation and um and now you know how much worse can things possibly get and even if they were that bad um i you know i would know i would judge the weather was coming i wouldn't push myself to sweat i wouldn't leave setting up camp so late in the first place right and and um uh and i would be able to deal with that situation much better and uh, you know, I had another couple scary situations. I remember another time I was exhausted, and I uh, this wind was coming in so strong. This was probably this was a thirty six day solo Arctic expedition, and so right now I'm probably day twenty or something like that. And I had nine days where I couldn't even travel because of blizzard. So you know, I didn't plan nine extra days of food. So I'm starting to run out of food because you were bringing everything with you on that sled. 
Exactly. Yeah. So between me and my dog, we're pulling, we're unsupported. There's no road access anywhere. Even the communities where I finished and ended my trip, there's no road into them. So everything is coming by air in the winter or or, or by a long, endless barge barge from the road system in, in summer. Um, so, you know, so this is extremely remote. And I remember, so I build this snow block wall and right as I'm finished, the wind changes directions and I can't get my tent up. And now I need to continue building and extending the snow block wall to the point, and I'm at the point of exhaustion and finally get the tent up. And I remember sitting there just being like, you know, there's no way that like any of these dudes on the survival shows you'd see on TV are ever in this amount of real danger, like Bear Grylls and, you know, Survivor Man and all these guys, you know, Survivor Man show was pretty freaking real to begin with, but there's no way that that any production crew or network would ever let anybody be in this intense and dangerous of a situation where literally your sat phone, I had a sat phone or my personal locator beacon mm. is at that point, it's there to tell people where your body will be. That's what it's for. It's to tell people where they can find your body and not for anything else in these situations. Wow, this is absolutely terrifying. And <laughs> and at the same time, because he just mentioned these shows, um, that, that just has to bring me to, to the point where you obviously been on one of those uh, famous shows alone. Um that you that that you also successfully successfully won in the end. So so how was it? Now you have the comparison. You've you've been on one of these shows. You've been out there. How hard? Like how how do you rank the the feeling, the danger, the the danger level that that you felt? Because I, I watched the show and it looks it looks horrible. I mean, it doesn't look like fun at all when when you watch it. It's it's raining. It's horrible. You you don't eat, and at the same time you you do have that realistic option to just pull out. So, so mm -hmm. that is always in the back of your mind. If you compare these two situations, how, how, how was it for you? How do you compare them? Well, I think that's actually a really good question because I actually did that specific 36-day solo crossing of the Ungava Peninsula in the same year I went on a loan. You know, so that year alone, I think uh, between as 2017 into 2018, I, I spent almost five months over a over a uh, 10 month period surviving in on a loan. I was there 75 days. I was on the Arctic for 36 days. I did a two week flying canoe trip. I was on the alone boot camp for five days uh, and stuff, stuff in between. So there, there was a lot of, in a way, experience and practice going into alone, but this was different. And, and the way I'd compare them to answer your question is that even though crossing the Ungava Peninsula was the most uh, um, dangerous and terrifying thing I've ever done, alone and you know the starvation was the hardest emotionally. And part of the reason for that is because you do not have a map. You do not, and and this is one of the challenges in a real like survival situation. We'll call it, like, you know, let's say like alone where we were on northern Vancouver Island. It was almost like a shipwreck scenario in the late fall and winter, um, which turned out to be the coldest winter in 30 years and the rainiest November on record in one of the rainiest places in North America. 
um, and pretty far north, very little daylight, very little food. And you do not have an end date. It's not like some sort of athletic pursuit. When I was crossing the Angava Peninsula, I could say, I'm running out of food, okay? I, I look at my map, I have this many kilometers left. If I can bang off on average 20 kilometers a day and I cut my food rations down in half, I can reach the Hudson Bay on this day before I run out of food. There's a plan. There's a map. There, there's something you can do, right? Whereas on a loan, uh, which is realistic of, of a survival situation, is you don't know whether you're going to be rescued that day or whether in a real survival situation or whether you're going to slowly starve to death and die out there. You know what I mean? And alone, you have the other thing playing with you. Now, of course, a real survival situation where you don't have a tap out button and people that will come extract you, you know, by probably latest the following day, um, you know, you are going to, uh, uh, you know, a real survival situation is way more terrifying but because you don't have that. But on a loan, um, you also are thinking about these other contestants in the show. Why am I still out here, you know, pushing myself every day is so mm -hmm. hard. My brother and I, uh, you know, we, we would make a notch on a tree every day, uh, you know, for to show an extra day that, that we've been. Each notch was so ter was so challenging to make. And, and uh, you know, you'd say, why are we still out here? Does the other guy, has he harvested a, a bear for food and he's used all the calories to build a log cabin and he could be out here for a year? Why are we still suffering out here? And just that ability to, to push yourself to get up when you're so uh, weak on calories um, is very, very hard. Uh, so it's a di it's definitely a different experience, not as dangerous, not as terrifying, but very, very physically hard, in, not in that you're traveling 20 kilometers a day, um, but physically hard because your body starts to deplete. And it's, you know, you it's very hard to find the energy to do anything and very mentally hard because of all the reasons I just explained. Exactly. Because just to recap the concept of the show to understand what you were describing, it is you are out there in an extremely hostile environment and other people are out there as well. You don't see each other. You don't talk to each other. You only by yourself. And um, then basically the person who doesn't tap out at the very end and who taps out yeah. the last that that they win the show. So that's that's what you meant with you don't know what the other people are doing. How come they yes. are still out there? How come they haven't tapped out? And and what what am I missing here? And this it it sounds a lot like the psychology aspect is incredibly important to to mm -hmm. make yourself suffer the next day and the next day because I assume just getting food is so so difficult and it's pretty much your only task you have after you've built a shelter mm -hmm. it is getting food how, how how is that feeling to wake up every day and know the only thing i have to do is get more calories mm -hmm. in me than i use mm -hmm. um yeah i would agree with you and yeah important to provide that context it alone is the last person standing wins a half a million dollars um, and so if you don't win, you get nothing, you know, so it's, it, it, there's a lot there. Um, and to answer your question directly, it's, uh, it, it's, it can be a bit of an emotional roller coaster. Uh, and, and that, and I think that's the same reason why you see so many people that are motivational speakers, professional motivational speakers who will use examples like this, like, um, 
one that's almost cliche is is climbing a mountain and taking that metaphor between the mental challenges and climbing a mountain and applying it to your life in the modern world. And there's uh, so many things uh, like that with alone and the mental game is the strongest game. And um, I think because of that, uh, that's why only really experience can give you uh, the 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 best survival skill at all, which is just that mental ability to push through. And a lot of that comes with knowing what you need to be afraid of and what you need not to be afraid of, but also just becoming comfortable with uncomfortable situations. And it's not something that you can read in a survival book or watch on YouTube. You have to be out there in real situations. And I think that expedition mentality, although different, although I could look on a map and I could plan how am I going to get out of here? Uh, even though that's different than alone i think that mentality was what gave me that survival skill that we is an overlooked survival skill because we usually think of lighting a bow drill fire or a friction fire foraging wild edibles but all that doesn't mean anything if you can't just freaking deal with roughing it right and uh despite the fact that you know we had the 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 waking up and what how am i going to get food today and how how am i going to do am i going to starve today am i going to get something you know in a way it also really that kind of core hand to mouth survival living like you know it really makes kind of all your problems in your day-to-day life disappear. And, you know, it was one thing that you're out there filming a TV show. I remember we spent Christmas out there and wasn't that depressing, but, you know, it was an eye-opener. How many people, you know, it's like the song, do they know it's Christmas time at all? I don't know if you have that one. (laughs) How many people don't even know it's Christmas time? And here I'm missing Christmas. I'm starving, but I'm doing it for a TV show and I have a tap out button. And, and I'm sad. Imagine, you know, you know, about that. So, you know, it, uh, it definitely um, gives you that perspective, but at the same time, it's easy to forget out there and get caught up in the actual survival of it all. And, and you really, you start to realize that all these issues that you had uh, that in your day-to-day life and things that you worry about, that you really convince yourself are really serious issues that you really should worry about. When you're out there and all you have to think about is getting your food, even though you might feel miserable at the time, you just stop giving two craps about all these things that you thought would bother you. And you sit there and you've reflected them and you tell yourself, you know what, when I get back home from this, I'm just not going to care about these things anymore because now the perspective I'm looking at them from, I don't care anymore. And, and I, you know, it's interesting. I feel like when you're, Uh, You know, we're so evolved to be, you know, living in nature, in wilderness, and we're kind of evolved to uh, be able to feel good by solving problems, not problems that are too hard, but problems that we can solve. And we're Mm. so uh, naturally um, evolved to need a fight or flight to actually fight or flight. And and I think somewhere in there, we kind of get caught up in the fact that we don't really need that sort of fight or flight anymore. And, and uh, we don't really need um, uh, and the problems we have are, are, are different than the ones that we have when we lived in nature to today that I think somehow um, we get kind of caught up in them in a way that's more 
uh, substantial than what we really need to be. And when you're actually out there hungry or when you're actually out there, like I just came back from another um, 10 day uh, uh, snowshoe winter trek in a remote area, Northern Ontario. And even though it was incredibly hard and at the incredibly physically demanding and at the end of every day, you were kind of like physically broken. Um, but just the reward you'd get by, you know, catching a fish and eating it in your tent. We're traveling with a small wood, portable wood stove and a canvas tent and you'd warm up and you, you'd sleep at the end of the day, you'd have that reward. You'd figure out these things. And even though some people might consider that backbreakingly terrible and miserable, you miss it when you get home because it's just kind of that simplicity uh, of life. And, you know, sometimes I think maybe romantically, albeit that, uh, you know, I, I kind of wish that that way of life sometime was the real way of life still, as opposed to just, I mean, it is for me, I suppose, in my job, but as opposed to just kind of a recreational pursuit, uh, which it sort of has become nowadays. And, you know, I guess that that's uh, to answer your question, you know, how was that? It, it was very challenging, but also gives you a, a good position to uh, not think about other issues in your life, but respect, reflect on them in a positive way when you do have that time to do it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think pretty well. Um, you know, I think that that positive uh, kind of thinking, you know, we live we live life in our, our, our heads, really, don't we? And I think that way of thinking of pushing through has definitely helped me do what I do, because at the end of the day, you know, what I do isn't easy. And I'm a professional adventurer. I'm a professional uh, content creator and sort of some people would consider that to be living the dream. I'm one of the very few people in the world, probably 1% of the people in the world that really gets to do exactly what they want to do in life. And I feel that that passion, my passion for the outdoors and doing these things has carried over and that passion of, you know, pushing forward, staying positive, um, when I'm on an expedition, no matter how hard things get, has uh, subconsciously and consciously transferred over into my actual life and my actual business. Um, and even more so uh, in my marriage too, my wife and I, um, BC before kids, uh, we, you know, we um, seems like so long ago, but it wasn't. Um, before we got actually married, we, we kind of did our honeymoon before we got married. And one of the things we did with these back-to-back -back big adventures was we did a crazy backpacking trek in the Canadian Rockies. And we hiked um, about 170 kilometers from Jasper all the way to Grand Cache um, in, in Alberta, Canada, through a remote area of Jasper National Park and crossed over into uh, an area called Wilmore Wilderness, uh, which is a very remote area, you know, huge cougar prints, more animal prints on the trail, eventually basically no trail, um, you know, uh, and we we're doing 20 kilometers a day. We we're filming the trip too. And we, you know, we weren't not really backpackers because we usually travel a little heavier being canoeists. Plus we knew we'd be at areas of very high elevation. We even got snow in the middle of summer. And so we had to carry more clothes and more, more sleeping bags. So we were pretty overpacked 
and uh, being able to overcome that extreme challenge. The last three kilometers each day was very backbreakingly challenging and very emotionally scary because you think, oh man, we're here we are again. We I don't know if we're going to make it. Uh, if we don't make it, we're going to run out of food. Uh, if we run out of food, how are we going to need to be evacuated? You know what I mean? These problems, then you get to camp every day and you just feel elated and you just feel great because of all the exercise and the endorphins and the beautiful scenery around you. And you'd be like rewarded again to just go ahead and do it again the next day. We bumped into a group of uh, mountain Métis people. Métis people are a culture and are considered an indigenous people of Canada, a culture of people that come from uh, uh, mixed European and mixed indigenous tribal backgrounds that essentially uh, form their own sort of tribe of people. And it turned out we were following the same trail on a nine generations old trail that they their uh, grandparents had had followed after their forced exodus by the Canadian government um, when they you know, forced exodus from the uh, Athabasca Valley when they turned it into Jasper National Park and relocated in the Grand Cache area. And so um, they, we kind of basically stumbled on some interesting friends and interesting culture and an interesting yet sad piece of of canadian history on that adventure when we met these horse packers and uh and and so my wife and i you know we marriage is tough when you have kids for anybody um and at times um fortunately we're the lucky ones that we we seem to be doing pretty well but uh you know when we've gotten in fights or whatever before i say come on honey you know we backpacked across the rockies together just to experience the emotionalness even to this day when we think about that trip we start to feel emotional to where we could cry we don't even understand why but to experience that together and pull that through together we know that we can basically deal with any issues in front of us uh, in our personal lives and in our marriage too. And so I definitely would recommend doing that because it's extremely character building, especially with people that you're close to, like your partner. Um, and, And the same thing, you do this with other friends and family members with your brother. It's almost like you become brothers with some of these people, these, these hard adventures, they really bring out who your real self is. And even though you might, you know, spending a lot of time with someone else, you might think that they're a little crazy, you might see more of the more of their personality than you want to, but at the same time, you kind of become like brothers with them, Mm. or sisters with them, because, um, because you see that side of them, but you can fight with them now but you can also get over it they're going to see that you're not always the most mature rational person at every point when you're starving but yet you will love them because you will now uh, uh, will trust them to save your life and vice versa when you're in these remote uh, places yeah i can only agree i think these tandem combinations especially also in a group but especially when you're just two people you create this very unique bond where if you out Mm. out there in the wild if you're in a more dangerous nature survival situation you just have to rely on the other person more than you would ever rely on anyone to literally save your life if something goes wrong because it's it's probably only you and i also feel that you are then able to build up a much higher tolerance towards the Mm. other person and um usually you are then quite good at making compromises. Um, mm-hmm. I, I had one. I had one example where I was with a with a with a friend that I actually barely knew. Or we just basically met over that adventure, and 
he always wanted to have a coffee in the morning before heading out. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't drink coffee, really. I don't need that morning ritual. And for me, it was just waste of time um, that we could have mm -hmm. spent otherwise. But it became very mm -hmm. clear very quickly that this is so important to him that if he doesn't get his coffee, it's, it's, you know, I need to make that sacrifice. And then I just, you know, started and, you know, look out, look out on the water or wherever we were and allowed mm -hmm. him to have his coffee. And I, I felt this, this kind of tolerance, this kind of compromise in these extreme mm -hmm. situations that you now had with your wife. I think it's fantastic to do this with actually someone you love and you plan on spending the rest of your life with, because you, you see each other at, their best and their worst during those times that's pretty certain mm -hmm. yeah that's that's a really good point and just a, a little thing like coffee you know we i have coffee in the morning but i don't necessarily sit there and take a long time drinking it you know what i mean but um it's just a nice to have especially on colder mornings but it, it's it's uh you know it's it's funny you should mention that because um you know i have a, a a similar i've had kind of similar experiences where you sort of have to um uh you know um compromise with with other people and sort of their ideas and what they want to do out there as well and uh um you know, it's a good idea before you get get into one of these trips to sort of set the law. Okay, we're going on a canoe trip. Is this a fishing trip? Are you, because I'm not that into fishing, are you just going to be fishing all the time and yeah. we're never going to make it to where we need to make it? Or what, you know, what what exactly is, is the plan here? I think it's kind of good to set that up out front, but you have to also sort of, um, you know, uh, compromise a little bit along the way for sure. Absolutely. And also the just the mood swings that that people have you need to you know you need to buffer them then the other person needs to step up a little bit here and there i remember uh we, we were on this crazy expedition this was a 33-day canoe expedition to cross northern quebec and labrador we had to go up a large section of the george river and and very long portages and serious whitewater challenges and all kinds of stuff and we were living off the land uh for uh, almost a third of our calories just by fish we were hunting it was in september and goose season so we were hunting uh some wild geese along the way and picking berries and, and eating just like living off the land and it was a really cool it was a really challenging and cool trip and but we were having that same thing in the morning where we just need more time it was getting late in the season we were losing a lot of daylight every day and we said we got to get out of camp because we're kind of racing against darkness yeah. every day and we brought you know coffee and and oatmeal so oatmeal it's like instant oatmeal you have to ask uh, water and they said okay guys like new plan to get out of morning out here early morning no coffees and we just eat our oatmeal with cold water and we just get out of there and all in favor and there's four guys on the trip and i said me and the other guy said i'm in and the third guy said okay i'm in let's do that and the fourth guy's like nope i'm out what do you mean you're out like you're just gonna get a heli vac you're gonna stay back. you know what i mean like how could, you be, how could you be out and he said i'm out and so anyways he vetoed it and he said i don't care if it takes us that much longer i'm not missing i'm not going out there without a coffee in the morning so he's very much the guy, kind of guy who didn't want to miss his coffee he's tough as nails but he's not drinking those are the little creature comforts that he still really needed out there and so he won that battle uh it's it's one one to one my experience exactly with the oatmeal <laughs> we also i tried to settle on the oatmeal and he was like nope uh, oatmeal yeah but also the coffee <laughs> and then you know um yeah, 
you've been now all all around Canada, as you've mentioned in the beginning, and I think by now it became clear that you've generally been all around Canada. Um, how did you see the 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 Arctic maybe even change in the last seventeen years? Do you, is it still the wild place you've seen when you first went out, or has actually you know maybe humans, but also maybe just nature, climate change had an impact that you can already see in 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 those yeah very fragile places. Yeah, I think for better or for worse, in some in some ways, for for better, there is more like modern amenities, we'll call it, in some of the remote Inuit communities um, uh, than there were. Uh, although you know the the north is kind of you know not what the north once was in in that aspect. Is that people you know aren't kind of. Uh, living off the land to the same extent and they do have more modern uh things there now like in Kulatuk, uh nunavut i think there's only one dog team left most people use snowmobile you know if there's even one left now i don't know anymore um so yeah so think things have changed like uh, in, in nunavut most of the communities have cell reception within you know within that immediate area of the community um, which, you know, is good for safety and, and reasons like that. And for just people there connecting, um, you know, a lot of uh, a, a fair amount of other things uh, too. Um, also, there's much more in mineral exploration going on up there, much more proposed mines and, and remote mines where, you know, they can be accessed by a boat and stuff like that. So still no really connecting road system, but always there's more, um, talk of building roads, building development. And, you know, it's funny how much development can just happen in a 20 year period. And then, you know, uh, in, you know, 50 uh, uh, years, all of a sudden things are very different. And that's sort of my, um, my area of when it comes to conservation. And I, I have seen the North change uh, uh, sort of like the, you know, the, the, the kind of true North of, of sort of the, uh, the Farley Mowat books and stuff like that sort of hanging on by thread when I started, uh, you know, my first adventures in the high Arctic and stuff like that, um, about 2008, um, wild stories I could get into and, and stuff like that. <clears throat> um, so it's, it, it has changed to an extent, uh, but um, the the remote areas are still there. Although you'll look at some maps and you'll see these remote areas and then you'll discover that, all these areas in a given spot um, are all claim claim stakes by a mineral exploration company. When you know, 17 years ago, no mineral ex expedition company, even uh, exploration company, had even been there. And you'll bump into just a random helicopters flying around, or you know, you'll 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 see a remote. Uh, you know what was originally an outfitter's cabin maybe a hunting outfitter's cabin that is now being rented by a mineral exploration company who's having you know barrels of 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 fuel flowing in from the nearest community to uh, enormous every day at enormous expenses to then fuel their chopper to drop geologists and prospectors off in the surrounding area uh looking for minerals that to you know develop a large-scale mining operation eventually so this is happening more and more and more 
Um, you'll also, uh, the other thing you see a lot of, which is definitely lower impact, but is a lot of just like fly in fishing lodges. And as a bit of a, you know, kind of a wilderness purist, um, when you get to some sort of remote, uh, extremely remote backcountry lake that lies between the border of northern Quebec and the Labrador, and all of a sudden you see a motorboat bombing up to you, you're like, what the hell? And what happens is people pay big bucks to get flown in by, you know, into um, a remote wilderness lodge and they will fish with a guide in the area. Mm. Um, here you have spent, you know, incredible amounts of elbow grease and backpacking challenge to get in there. And uh, so it, it, it sort of it takes away from that a little bit. But at the same time, I really don't want to, um, you know, say anything bad be- about um that business the flying fishing business because it does offer jobs to a lot of canadians and most of those people and those lodge owners are definitely invested in in small amounts of development keeping the land wild and to me that's uh to me that's uh, uh the the thing that we're losing fastest um, i know climate change right here we're experiencing the warmest winter in canadian history i had all kinds of bizarre ice conditions where wherever there was moving water when i was up in tomogamy we were experiencing open water where on a normal winter that would just be walkable ice and having to bushwhack around stretches of open water that would be unthinkable in previous years um you are you are seeing that but but my kind of focus is in not polluting the water clean water uh you know clean air but also just reducing the development aka access ease of access into remote areas is what i think will truly kind of uh preserve uh the raw wilderness which i don't think anybody really understands what that's like what that raw wilderness is really like until visit these areas and they're just freaking catching 10 15 pound lake trout with just a piece of parachute cord and a and a freaking uh, a lure and catching two lake trout at once on one lure with all the barbs pinched off you know and and the the wildlife being followed by packs of arctic wolves and seeing over 100 muskox and hand feeding a wild fox because it's not afraid of you because it's never seen humans before um, these are the experience that true wilderness areas uh, provide. And I think that uh, there's something that uh, very few people get to witness how amazing and truly incredible the, the, those kind of uh, experiences are. And I think that the more people that get a chance to kind of see them or feel them or even just understand what they're like, the more people might be opposed to developing some of these more remote areas um, that we have in Canada. And so I, I, I personally hope I, you know, people might disagree with me and I don't necessarily have any qualms with them, but from my uh, personal experience as somebody that also used to work in mineral exploration, you know, I definitely would like to see, um, you know, uh, less development and in some of these uh, wild spaces that I've been in. Yeah. I think that is, fully understood and would be would be amazing it comes always with the the little compromise of course you want people to see that to feel that to get these experiences and at the same time by them getting these experience and more and more people getting there you, you build up the problem it's a bit the same you see in, in mountaineering where of course everyone should be able to climb a mountain if, if, if they want right. to but the more the more accessible these mountains then become the more yeah. people flood them and then you get in this in this cycle where maybe the magic disappears 
I, I agree. That's true. Like, look at how many people are on Everest nowadays, or or even yeah. what I do. Like, part of you know, part of me, I don't usually promote a specific route and tell people exactly where I am, unless it's very remote. And I, um, but I, I like to kind of bring that to people in some of my films. Uh, but part of what I'm also bringing is that look, this isn't going to be the same if all of a sudden they build a road right to where I landed on my float plane, uh, so people can access it. Right, that would yeah. kind of kill the 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 thing. So, you know, people, you know, I, I'm kind of under the uh, opinion too, which is a little off topic, but that you know, humans do have a place to some extent in in the outdoors in nature um so if people are using a river recreationally or indigenous people are using it for you know uh to to um uh, for sustenance uh harvesting and stuff like that i mean i'm okay with that it's just the the construction of uh uh roads and large scale you know resource development uh that yeah. now brings a lot of people in through the ease of access you know roads are the destroyer of wilderness you know yeah and so it's, it's that that i have more of a problem as opposed to just you know more people recreationally using a given river um some of these remote flying rivers in the yukon like you know, to get to that point, you know, like I paddled the Bonnet Plume River last year in the Peel Watershed. I was the only person to do it that year. You know what I mean? To get to the point where the river would be choked with a fly in, fly out river. We're nowhere near that. And maybe if it ever did get to that point, well, you know, it probably would be more likely to have further protection against it as well. But in that respect, I think it is a balancing act too, right? It's like it's like the whole geotagging argument, right? Should you just geotag every beautiful backcountry spot? And now the next thing you know, there's a hundred people there taking selfies for Instagram. Uh, is that good or bad? You know what I mean? Yeah. I would not necessarily say it's good. I think I like to present these places to people, but give them the enjoyment and excitement of trying to research them, find them on their own, on themselves. And, and that albeit give that will give them the skill set to get to these spots without endangering themselves as opposed to making it so easy to find, you know? Yeah. Thank you so much, Jim, for all your time. It has been uh, incredibly funny, uh, some parts. Absolutely, <laughs> um, and also just uh, shocking on the other hand, what 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 you've been through, and uh, very insightful. So thank you so much for that. I have uh, one last question. I think you are one of the perfect candidates to ask that question because you were standing in front of that situation um, more than maybe anyone ever has, and that is, if you could only bring one item, one gadget, or one thing with you um, when you head out into the wild, what would that one precious thing be? I mean, yeah, that's a tough question. Um, you know, it would either be uh, like a, a, an axe, you know, medium-sized axe, uh, or a good means of lighting a fire, you know, like mm. a, a ferrocerium rod or even just a lighter could save your butt big time. So, you know, but uh, uh, I, I think I'm going to have to go a tie between a good lighter uh, or an axe. That was Jim Bad, who is an incredible adventurer, survivalist, and uh, a wonderful human being. I enjoyed it so much talking to him. He is such an authentic person, and it is truly, truly inspiring to hear his stories. Not only 
from the adventure side, which is, you know, for anyone who's into adventures, who loves expeditions, something so crazy to hear and so unique to to hear these stories, but also his mindset and his positivity that that he keeps, the, the smile he always keeps up is something that we should all have in everyday life and definitely something we can learn from from Jim on how to put our everyday life's problems into perspective and understanding that if we feel like we are in a fight or flight situation, when we are stressed that, you know, sometimes it's good to know that we are not actually in danger. We are not in a fight or flight situation. Our body can calm down and we can, you know, move on and actually be happy and fulfilled and positive. And I think if Jim is able to stay positive when his tent is blowing away and uh, his dog's penis is freezing off and he's caught in a blizzard without food. I think we can stay positive if we miss a bus or miss a train or we we run late in a, in a traffic jam. So I know this all these things are always easier said than done. For me, it was truly inspiring to talk to someone like Jim, hear his perspective and feel all his this positive vibes and energy. And I'm very, very excited to hear more and see more from him. And if you want to see and hear more from him, You can go to his YouTube channel, The Adventurer, um, or Google for Jim Barrett. He has a, a strong presence now. You can watch, obviously, the show uh, that, that he was on. It was in season four of History's, uh, History Channels Alone. So that's season four with, uh, with Jim and Ted. Absolutely amazing and mind-blowing what these guys went through. And if you want to hear more of people like Jim, then make sure to follow or subscribe or like or give stars to the show. This means the world to us and uh, is, is the fuel that keeps us going. And to read more about Jim and all our other guests, you can visit our website, worldexplorerscollective.com. And they can also find all the information on how you can apply for funding. Yes, because twice a year we give out funding to expeditions um, that are meaningful that that help society and that are impactful we are now finalizing our first grant of 2023 and are very excited to soon announce some of the winners um, but stay updated because there will be a new grant opening make sure you sign up to newsletters and follow us because then you will definitely get all the information on when a new application window opens or We have amazing, amazing partners that provide gear that we give away on a regular basis. So if you're into the outdoors, if you're into expeditions, into adventures, make sure to to look us up and, uh, and, and read about all the opportunities that you have. And very excited for another episode coming out next week, Sunday. So make sure that you stay updated and to hear more from inspiring adventurers and yeah, people that really push themselves to the limit and that give us so much to learn from. And until then, I hope you have a great week. Bye.